All right, so um, some of us have been here kind of on and off, so let's just do a little review. It's always what you're supposed to do at the start of a course at the class, the start of class. So what have, we, what have we covered about C.S. Lewis so far? We're in the part of the book where we're not yet looking specifically at his ideas. We're looking at the broad, big ideas and the broad um, events of his life to put those ideas into context. So what are some things that we covered so far? Kind of a rough childhood. Rough childhood. That's one way of putting it. What do you mean by that, though? Well, his mom, well, I mean, you can give the specifics. His mom died young um, when he was young. Really. When he was young, yep, age um, nine. What yeah. happened to him then? Went to boarding school. Went to boarding about, school. About, yeah. Rough stuff. A rough boarding school. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then when he was 17 or 18, where did they send him? Well, wasn't that when you mean to the um, tutor? Yeah, the tutor. Right, Kirkpatrick. That was, Kirk Patrick, really that, was a, that. That was. He was a little happier then, right? And then where did he go? He took a trip to France. Oh, last week. Yeah, World War One. Uh, it's a leading question, oh. Laura. You <laughs> 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 me there. <laughs> and then when he got out of World War, uh, out of the army, he went and became a, was a student where. Oxford. Oxford, and he has two degrees. What are the two degrees? Everyone always remembers philosophy. the one. Philosophy. Philosophy and English. There you go. Okay, and he became a professor. And how, what, what did we talk about last week? That was the one most people missed. Well, the date he became Christian. Oh, the date he became oh, right. Christian, yes. We don't really care. Uh, but why is it hard to figure out the exact date that he became because Christian? Because it was a progression. Yeah. That's right. It's a progression for most of us. Right. That's right. Yeah, he went from atheism to deism, to monotheism, to monotheism Christ, <laughs> later to Trinitarianism. Now, what's really interesting, I just wanted to double back on this. Uh, how many people do you know that can articulate what the Trinity is in a very um, easily understood way? Yeah, not that um, What I find, I always find when I teach about the Trinity is it doesn't take me but about five minutes, and I start, and I'm like, oh, no, that's a heresy. Don't say that. No. <laughs> like, no, no, don't say that one either. That's a heresy, too. So the idea about him becoming a Trinitarian, I squiggle a bit because whatever. I don't want to spell the word. Um, is that um, it doesn't matter that you understand it. It's that you simply you say, yes, it's true. Yeah. So he came to realize that it was, in fact, true. But the monotheism Christ is, is the part where most Christians actually exist. We understand that there is uh, one God. Um, there's more to it than that, but Jesus is the way, right? As long as you talk about Jesus, if you focus on Jesus, then you won't uh, go astray. Okay, so roughly he, he, his friend Tolkien and Hugo Dyson went out on a walk with him on Addison's Walk. At, of, of course, because, you know, they have families and stuff. They go out at like midnight and go on walk and drinking a lot of beer. And what was it that they discussed? Christianity, but specifically in what regard? According to mythology. Yeah. Okay. Is it a myth? Is it a myth? And what did they determine? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. What is it? Now, what does that mean? Yes, but. It's a myth. Yes, but. Is it just a myth? Well, let's well, talk about. just. Not just, right? Yeah. It's a myth, but it's what? What was it that Tolkien argued? True. True myth. It's true myth. True myth. Okay. Now, what do we usually think of when we think of mythology? Just a story. 
made up stories Very to explain the world. Right, they're used to explain the world. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it that, who, who is it that is throwing this lightning down on us? Well, it's this guy named Thor, and here's his story. Okay? So, wh- why is it that every year um, everything dies and then it comes back to life in the spring? Well, there was this goddess who went down to Hades, yada, yada, yada. So, they, ex- they use these stories to explain. Mm-hmm. Moderns like to think that the ancients didn't really believe these stories. But that's nonsense. They really did believe them. Okay? There's always been atheistic people. There's always been skeptics. But there, people really did believe these stories. And all of the false religions, um, the, they all had myths. So Tolkien is arguing that Genesis, the, the Gospels, the whole Bible, is in fact a myth, but it's true. Okay? All the other myths that C.S. Lewis has heard are a shadow of the true myth. Um, there's a reason that every culture has a flood story. And I mean, every culture has one story. You go anywhere, and you go back far enough, and the people who lived in that place will have a story about a flood. Why? Because there really was a universal flood. So um, this started C.S. Lewis down a path, because Tolkien wanted Lewis to read the Bible the way that he read literature and let it capture his imagination and consider its meaning. Now, remember, he kept talking, Lewis, about the the organ of meaning versus the organ of of logic. So, you can determine if things are true using logic, but that doesn't help you with its meaning. Your imagination has to help you with its meaning. Does this make sense? Now, what does that mean exactly? How does that work? How does our imagination give the truth meaning? This is a very odd way of talking about something James, I think, talks about in his uh, epistle. But what do you guys think? How does imagination help us with meaning versus Logic helping us with truth. Mm-hmm. How philosophical are we feeling yet? <laughs> Nine fifteen on a yeah, Sunday yeah. morning. <laughs> um, maybe make analogies, like find things that are find common things we understand and imagine them, and try to make those connections. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, so we can determine by logic and evidence that Jesus actually did resurrect. But it's a, what is it? You got to use your imagination to understand what that means. Well, if he resur- if he was resurrected, that means we could all be resurrected. And if he if we could all be resurrected, that means that this place that we're in isn't the last place that we're going. There's another place, right? And so you work out. Um, you, you, you know, you have to have the logic. You have to understand if it's true which we're going to talk about next week is the correspondence theory of truth. But he began to understand that you didn't have to have just logic, you could have imagination. Right? He thought, like a lot of Christians, when I become a Christian, I have to give up all the things I love. And all the things he loves were stories and fairy tales and myths. And what Tolkien convinced him of is he didn't, not only do you not have to give that stuff up, that stuff is actually going to help you be a stronger Christian. And that's what we're going to talk about today is his life as an apologist. Now, I, you know, our resident apologist is actually um, Jared. Jared is our resident apologist. I don't know if people knew, knew this, but when he was like 19 and 20, there used to be a radio program, a local one, where they would go on and, and discuss apologetics. Uh, and he taught a class just like this about apologetics a few years ago. He's really into apologetics. Um, so just, do you guys know what apologetics are? What are apologetics? It's not an apology, you're not saying sorry. Right. <laughs> Giving a rational defense of the Christian faith. Yep. A rational defense of the faith. 
And that, um, this is always how it's considered now. Okay, and there's two schools in the modern, there's evidentialists like R.C. Sproul, uh, which means that if you present enough evidence, you will convince people that Christianity is true. But then there's the presuppositionalist of Antillians who, you know, there's no evidence, in the, not enough evidence in the world to convince anyone. What you have to do with what people presuppose to be true. Like, here's an example. Um, when you were a small child, how did you determine that the fire truck that you were playing with was red? How did you? Someone told you. Someone told you. Now, did you believe them before you knew it was true? Yes. 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 Now, all human understanding is based on this. Everything, right, any conversation, any knowledge, new knowledge that we uh, come up against, there is a record of old knowledge in our minds where someone told us the fire truck was red. And so what, what we deal with in apologetics is really telling people the fire truck is blue. Um, right? No, boys can't be girls. Um, uh, communism doesn't work. <laughs> Jesus is the Lord, right? You're, and, and so you come up with people, and you, you're like, well, I'm telling them all this evidence. I'm giving them all this evidence, and I don't understand it. Well, it's because you didn't deal with the, the underlying assumptions, okay? Now, these two schools are always arguing over what's better. Now, if you're a good apologist, why limit yourself to one of the things? Right? Take it all. Um, because... People, like we saw with C.S. Lewis, are converted in, in a very long process. So for him, it was both dealing with his underlying assumptions, but also giving, piling on top of it evidence. So what he determined when he be, decided to become an apologist, and he was ready-made for this, because and, and, and it'd be a very rare kind of apologist, because what, what were the two sides of his brain that, he, that were always being held in tension? You guys remember? Irrational myth. Well, the rational, and what do we call the other one? Uh, imaginative. 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 Yeah. Imaginative. I can't spell. Okay? That says imaginative. <laughs> <laughs> so what I do is, yeah, yeah. So what I do with high school kids, I just do this. Imaginative. <laughs> <laughs> go go to Google and it'll tell you how to spell <laughs> So the reason that he was in a position to be such an effective apologist is because instead of just dealing with a rational defense, which is what a lot of apologetics deals with, it's very boring. You know what I'm saying? Like I love some like certain apologetic books you read it and you're like this makes so much sense, and why do I feel so cold and empty inside? Because <laughs> they're just dealing with rational. But human beings aren't merely rational creatures. And so C.S. Lewis, okay, unlike his contemporaries, um, he he was he did both of these things. He he was an academic, and what he never wanted to do was to to retain um, his academic bona fides at the expense of his Christianity. Because what happens, Wilson calls this cool shaming. You guys ever heard this phrase, cool shaming? Okay, cool shaming is something that happens in a lot of fields, but especially academics, right? In order to be considered a real true academic at Harvard now, and to say that the world was created in six days, six real days, 6,000 years ago, um, you're, this, you're going to deal with a lot of cool shaming, right? So a lot of Christians compromise with these kinds of things because they want to be taken seriously by the people that they think matter. They want to table, right? They want to seat at the table. 
And C.S. Lewis did not play this game. This is not a game he played. He, he did not care to make Christianity cool. He wanted to make it clear and he wanted to make it beautiful. That was what he wanted. And he, it actually does, in fact, cost him. cost him a great deal. Be, uh, a lot of his colleagues were very angry and, a, and, and the accusation always about him from his colleagues was that he wrote all these popular level, level books because of his ego. He just wants to be loved. He can't, he's not a real academic. Um, and then years later, he comes out with what he calls his Oh Hell book. <laughs> oh Hell book? Oxford History of... The Oxford History of English Literature. <laughs> he wrote a little book. took him 25 years called Literature in the 16th Century... Excluding drama. That's literally the name of the book. And if you read the preface to it, it's like a master's degree in English literature. So he clearly was an academic. And a better academic, right? He read he wrote a preface to Paradise Lost and completely changed the study of Milton. Just with a preface. <laughs> but those things kind of came and came and they were rare for him. So this populist thing, this cool shaming, was something he dealt with a lot. And he just did not care to be considered cool. And for many years, they, they denied him a professorship, a chair, at Oxford because everyone, they were all embarrassed by him. Now, are, is this something that's cool, Shane? Something that we experience still today? Oh, yes. Right? <laughs> I remember I was recently debating with someone, and I offhandedly mentioned that um, Darwinism is stupid. <laughs> and that was like the person was like, "Oh, well, you're you're like a monkey. You're like an idiot." So I'm not even like the, the conversation was over. And like they and even I didn't know the person, but even in the way they were interacting with me, it was you could tell it was this cool like, "Oh, you're not even worthy of discussing this with because you're so stupid." <laughs> I was like, "No, you know what's stupid is Darwinism." <laughs> <laughs> and this happened. I remember when I worked at the courthouse. Um, I was very nervous because we worked in an office where they also did marriage licenses. And one of my first questions was, do we, do we ever, as King County employees, have to fill in for them? Because I can't, I can't give marriage licenses at all. And they're like, oh, why not? I was like, well, because I, I'd have to give it to same-sex couples. Hmm. And, and they were like, oh, no, not really. You're not really. One of those. Okay. Those people. <laughs> Which is very strange because then later when I had to do name changes for people who, you know, James becomes... Jenny, uh, I had no problem with that. So they were very nervous about it. Like they were all like, "Oh, here come Mike's going to have a problem." And I was like, "I have no problem with this because this is this is who cares about the name? The the crime and the sin already occurred down downstream, and I'm just down here helping the person out getting a name change, which is neither here nor there." Hmm. But I remember when I worked in the courthouse, there was a lot of cool shit, uh, especially like I wouldn't lie. Because it's a shocking how many judges tell you to lie to lawyers. And I was like, I'm not going to actually do that. <laughs> so they're like, okay, well, get me somebody who will. And I'd be like, oh, okay, hold on. <laughs> and I call out the office, hey, so-and-so need you in room, you know, courtroom three. <laughs> and everyone knew at that point, they were like, oh, I'm going to have to go down there and lie. <laughs> now, what are some ways you guys deal with this um, in the real world, right? Public school education, perhaps? Is there any cool shaming ever going on about homeschoolers? Look at you, Rachel. You ever experience cool shaming? All the time. <laughs> and how does it manifest itself? Everyone, how does it manifest itself in your lives? 
It's happening right now. I mean, people like a lot of my coworkers are like, "How? What do you mean you're not vaccinated? Why oh, are you yeah, yeah. Social exclusion. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. what? Like, yeah, you're one of those. Aren't you smart? <laughs> yeah, we were at a fancy restaurant on Friday night, and the and the extremely intelligent, educated people sitting at the table next to us were kept talking about these anti-vaxxers, these anti-vaxxers, and, right. and like they were talking about it like the, like I talk about the Sasquatch. Like, I'm pretty sure he exists, but nobody's really ever seen him. <laughs> so these people were like, I think, you know, these people exist. We just don't know who they are. And, and we just were sitting there, you know, eating our meal and drinking our wine, laughing. And, and like, we were just this couple laughing for no reason, but it's these people next to us. <laughs> they were like, cool shaming us and didn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> it should have been like we'll move up we're here. Here. yeah yeah we're right here <laughs> so the thing that C.S. Lewis wanted to do was drag Christianity back to the center he did, he did not want to accept modern assumptions he, he wanted to drag Christianity back to the center we're going to talk a lot about this assuming the center hmm. um, did they crucify Christ in a basement somewhere nope uh, it's really interesting so like you use these examples, uh, like the Russian Revolution. Where did they shoot the czar and his whole family? In the basement. In the basement. And, no, and, and like they're not really sure who the witnesses are to that, right? It happened off stage somewhere. Now, why did they shoot, right? If they really believed in what they were doing, why did they shoot the czar in a basement? I think they were probably just maybe afraid afraid right yeah Uh, when they shot Michael Collins uh, they shot him um, at a crossroads like way out in the middle of Cork it took quite a while to figure out that he even died because they were like well let's wait until right let's not shoot him in Dublin where everyone can see us do it let's do it way off in the middle of nowhere in Cork the county he's from even more insulting because they want to have it happen out in the shadows Mm -hmm. now Christ was crucified right outside the main gate during a holiday out in public with um, yeah, with a board above his head saying he's the king in all three languages that everyone spoke. Like it did not happen in a corner. It did not happen in the shadows. It didn't happen in a basement. They killed him in broad daylight. They are they assumed that we are assuming the center. They did it in broad daylight. So why are we trying to hide it in a basement? Right. My Christianity is not a personal thing that I that I go home and deal with in the quiet of my own home. I assume the center. Right? Linwood doesn't belong to the city council, to the mayor, to the governor, right? It doesn't belong to the principalities and powers of the air, to the authorities of this world. It's Christ's. And when I pray for Linwood, uh, I pray for it in uh, assuming the center. This is your place, so treat it like it. <laughs> it's my exhortation to God. Right? And so assuming the center is something that I think is very difficult for us living in a blue city, in a blue county, in a blue state, <laughs> in a, on, on the blue coast. <laughs> but it's, it's going to be the difference maker for us, is, is to not be afraid to assume the center. Okay? I would Drag- say it's easier. It's easier. Boom. Look at this. This is what I'm saying. I don't even need to sell this. Go ahead, Mrs. Eby. What do you mean? Because you know it's wrong. They're celebrating it's wrong. Mm. But I go to Tennessee, and it's God bless you. And you know they're saying F you when they're saying God bless you. <laughs> they're just saying God bless your little heart, right? Yeah, yeah. And everyone is a Christian, and the churches are the size of malls. But how many people, especially in education, are like, oh, but they know better. And you're like, well, you have to res- assume res- ultimate responsibility yes. for your children at the end, and you're okay with this? Yeah. And they're like, oh, but it's, it's fine. 
I just want what's best for them. Mm-hmm. Not. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So when you're in a, I would argue, when you're in a red state, in a red town, there's a lot going on under the surface yes. that no one ever talks about because we're all nice on top. Mm-hmm. But in a blue state, in a blue town, in a blue workplace... <clears throat> They're all like Blue Origin. It's gonna no, but it's, <laughs> you come out even by your behavior without having to say anything. Yep, right, totally. As long they as you are yeah. yeah, like it's it's very apparent that you are different. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, especially with families. Yeah. Big families. Big families. Yeah. My my sister, mm. he's he's got how many kids? Right. Said, what difference does it make? You're, you know, they're supporting themselves. They're not living on the government. <laughs> yeah, she. Aunt Liz is always very. This is my mother-in-law, by the way. So, <laughs> Aunt Liz is always shocked by how many kids people have. And and what's always funny is with her. She's old school. Like you guys are from the south. She loves it, but she's always shocked by it. She's always like, "Are you sure that's how many kids they have?" Because it just seems so right. But in in one generation, who's going to be running the show around here? Well, right. Right, right, right. <laughs> right? I'm just like, guys, just give us 35 years yeah. and everything will we'll look up. So I would argue that C.S. Lewis, because he was at Oxford and not at one of those there you go. colleges that had remained <clears throat> it helped. Christian, yeah. it helped him. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that it forced him yeah, right. to be sharper, to publish more. There you go. To do his radio show, <laughs> to be unapologetic. Yeah. Because the harder the fight, the more he kept fighting. Right. And, and those were two things at Oxford that helped him. The first one was that he had students. He hated this part. Every Friday they would come to his rooms and they would read their awful papers and he would have to sit through it. And it was very, very belittling to him. So he first had to humble himself a great deal and be a guide to young people. Mm-hmm. Let's lead them along this path and, and show them that Milton isn't just... Um, necessary, it's beautiful. So he had to convince people. The other thing was this, right? He, no one could put Lewis down. And that, remember that uh, in the Narnian, the biography of him? Because he, he likes, he was a scrappy guy. Um, he was very pugilistic. So he did not mind arguing with people, and people did not mind taking him on, right? So when, this is, we're doing his life here. So there were two things, two clubs that he belonged to. Um, two different organizations he belonged to when he was at Oxford that, that addressed this issue and what made him such a sharp um, guy. Do you guys know the two groups? One is Inklings. The Inklings, yeah, the infamous Inklings. What's the other one? What did it? So like Oxford. The Socratic Club. Club. Yeah. Okay, so. My, my spiritual gift is not spelling. All right. So the Socratic Club, let me see here. That was an interesting club. Yeah, so he was the president of it from 1942 to 1954. So the, the, the way that it worked, it was, it was um, unapologetically haha, um, Christian. They, it was Christians that were in charge of it, but they, they would take on anyone. So a Christian one week would present a paper, and the next week an unbeliever or, or another Christian of various, various groups would take each other on presenting papers and debating. And, and this is what he, so they, he debated, this is how he became an apologist, really. This is how he learned exactly what do I need to attack? Well, the problem of pain, materialism, 
So his two books, Problem and Pain and Miracles, take on the two biggest issues of the time, which is, is, is you know, the problem of evil, essentially, and um, materialism, which believes that there is no, there's nothing beyond the physical world. Um, so he belonged to this group for a long time. And this was more formal, this was philosophical, but the Inklings was a little different. Um, and you know that you're really getting into the Lewis research when you actually start reading books about the Inklings. Um, there's a lot of myth about them. Um, there is no registered group. Uh, women were not allowed to be members. Uh, but it's very kind of confusing sometimes as to who was in and who wasn't. Because how is Dorothy Sayers not an Inkling is kind of my question. But she never really went to all the formal meetings, but everyone wrote letters to her. She interacted with all the guys and was very helpful to them all. Uh, there was another poet, um, Ruth Pitter. Hmm. Uh, Ruth Pitter was very influential on the Inklings, though she's not considered me. Okay, hmm. so what, what this club, they met twice a week on Tuesday mornings at the Burden Baby, where they would drink, uh, <laughs> drink any breakfast and discuss things. And then on Thursday nights in Lewis's rooms, they would all have dinner and drink and present something that they were writing. And you have all kinds of different people there. So Warney Lewis was obsessed with them. Um, obsessed with French history. So he wrote, he wrote. He actually wrote. It's, I can't even find copies of the books. If I ever go to England, I have to find copies of the books. But they're very hard to find. He wrote all these books about the kings of France and. These various periods, uh, which is funny because when he would present them, Tolkien thought they were fabulous, but he hated French people for some reason. <laughs> he was super, um, not racist, but just bigoted towards the French. So he's always like, shut up with the French stuff, boy. Um, then you had another guy, uh, some people who never presented. Hugo Dyson never presented. Uh, Roger Lancelin Green later, he was kind of a member. And he rewrote a lot of old mythology in, in, in sort of mod he modernized it. Um, they're excellent books. You get them through Puffin Classics. So th this was just a very different group than this one. Okay. Now, what did they mention in the text that we were reading about these groups? Like, how did these influence Lewis? How did the how did each feed that different side of his brain? Well, the Socrates had to be logic. Right. And the Inklings was. The myth. The myth part. Yeah, because they, they, they're famously said that if we can't, if nobody's going to write the books that we want to read, we'll just write them ourselves. So this is where um, we can thank C.S. Lewis for bringing uh, Lord of the Rings. If it weren't for C.S. Lewis, Lord of the Rings would, would never have come into the world. He's the midwife of Lord of the Rings, as they say. Um, because Tolkien would take forever to write things. Lewis would dash things off very quickly. It's funny, in the problem of pain, I'm reading with my other class, uh, he explained, he, he gives his opinion of how, of deistic evolution. Now, later in life, he didn't believe that that was true, but he never went back and changed it. You know why? He was like, ah, that's fine. <laughs> They'll just read essays I wrote later. They'll figure it out. Um, yeah, so this whole time, what, what, what happened here is that C.S. Lewis moved from wrestling internally to wrestling externally. Right? He wanted everyone to wrestle with these things. Um, his, his instinct as a teacher, his instinct as a thinker, his instinct as a debater was that he just wasn't, he didn't, it wasn't enough for him to wrestle himself. He wanted others to wrestle. He didn't want them just to assume all the things that they, the intelligentsia was assuming. He wanted them to assume the center. He wanted Christianity to be dragged into the center of the intellectual 
and moral and um, practical world, and he wanted people to deal with it. That was always his thing. You've got to deal with Christianity. He thinks every human being has got to deal with it. And, and these were uh, his two, I guess, testing grounds. This is where he practiced. Practice. Okay, you guys have any questions so far? I just am going strong here. Yakking away. Okay, so what he wanted to do, at first he wrote apologetic works. Okay, you guys know what are some of his apologetic works? Like strictly apologetic works. Some books he wrote to convince people Christianity was true. Mere Christianity? Uh, no, no. We'll hold off on that one for just a second. Before that, he did the problem of pain. Okay. You guys know what else he wrote? Miracles. That one actually came a lot later. That came even after. Uh... But we'll put it up. Okay. Sure, the... I was surprised that, that one came in the 50s. Sure, remember the books. Yeah, so these are the books. But what's kind of funny is where does um, screw tape letters fall into this? Oh, yeah. Is that an apologetic work? <laughs> See, and this is partially. Uh, Lewis scholars have too much time on their hands. People need to study something else, okay? How about uh, James Usher, who was a bishop in Ireland? It's really hard to find books about him. How about somebody writes some books about him? We're, we're good on the Lewis books. But, um, <laughs> okay, so well, I don't remember what I was going to say now. What was I talking about? Apologetic books. Oh, yes. Thank you. Okay, so he's at the Socratic Club one day. And this lady stands up and, and starts attacking one of his chapters in Miracles. And, and, and she actually put Lewis down. It's quite amazing. And he was very edified by it and changed um, his arguments in the book because of what she said. Hmm. But, for, but he has a friend who wrote a biography about him and said that this was very crushing to him. He was like crushed, like, a little, like just crushed. He's done writing apologetics. And he wrote this woman who presented this paper. She's the queen in Narnia. And he switched over to Narnia because he didn't want to write apologetics anymore. He, he like, his mind retreated into his childhood. Like, this is, this is like one whole line of argument about C.S. Lewis. And it's nonsense. It's nonsense. What, what he did say quite frequently is that he never doubted his faith as much as when he had just defended it. And the reason being is that after you've presented this argu these arguments and you're standing on the field victorious, it's very easy to think it's you. And so it undermines your faith, actually. And, and so he was getting tired of apologetics simply because it was, as you can see, it was costing him a lot of time. He, everyone wants to argue with him. Everyone wants to write letters with him. And so he switched to, to Narnia. But I, I think it's just, I think... I would argue that all of his works are apologetics. Because Screwtape Letters is apologetics, but it's done a it's a supposal. He calls it a supposal. Um, the Great Divorce is a supposal. Suppose we, we went to hell, and, and suppose there was this bus that went to heaven. <laughs> and then so he, he follows that idea along, but it's, it's supposed to be apologetics. Narnia is the same way. The Space Trilogy. The Space Trilogy. All. Bada bing, bada boom. All of his works are apologetics. It's just that he is a person who's both imaginative and logic. He could do both. I'll write, I'll write the problem of pain, and then I'll write the hideous strength, and everybody's got to deal with these ideas. Because that hideous strength, arguably, is the best book. So is this making sense? There's not a line in his life, I think, where he was like an apologist and then not one. Um, 
he was the whole time. It's just he, he used different weapons. Because Narnia is very, very, it's full of defense of the faith. So mere Christianity, so he, he, he started to go around and, and um, he had written these popular books. And then the RAF, the Royal Air Force, uh, had paid him to go and preach. He was like a lay preacher. And so he's getting a bit of a name for himself. And so this man wants him to come and give these talks on the radio about Christianity. So mere Christianity, when it began, were radio addresses. There was no book. Uh, there was no book for a very long time. But the radio addresses, um, he decided what he was going to talk about. It, they are apologetic, and he's talking to the average man. So this was his ability, and, he, and, and, and they were so popular, and people were so surprised by it. But I mean, think about what he'd already been through. He already knew how to argue the faith. He already knew how to talk to everyday people and students and people who had very little understanding and lead them along a, a path of logic that was, that was beautiful to come to the faith or come to an idea, come to see something was good. So that's why I think people responded so well. So it, after he did these radio addresses during World War II, the, he was the second most popular person to Winston Churchill. When you, everyone wanted to hear the voice, like hearing the voice of Winston Churchill and hearing the voice of C.S. Lewis was like very calming to everyone. Um, are there any person's voices that are this way now that are so universally in the United States that are so I have one in, in difficult times as a conservative raised by red state people when, when times got tough I always turned on Rush Limbaugh now I understand he's not a Christian but there, it was like you know what I just need to hear in this chaos right now is, is Uncle Rush <laughs> Telling me some stuff. But over time, I get angry listening to him, so I haven't have to stop. But, like, it's very strange how it works, because we're not, we're not people who listen to the radio, right? But are, are there public figures that we consider to be very comforting? Right? Our former presidents? Do we all feel better when, uh, what's his name? Bush. Bush comes out, throws out the first yeah, yeah. pitch at a baseball game, and everyone calms down? No. Right. <laughs> So this part of, um, of the story is kind of hard to understand. Like, but if you ha all you have is radio and you have a limited amount of <laughs> shows, one guy's voice is going to rise above the others. And so he became wildly famous at this time. And what he did is he did some talks and they made a pamphlet out of it. And then they invited him back like a year later for more talks. And so he did this several times and he put out the pamphlets. But then later he took all the pamphlets added some chapters, expanded on them, made it a little clearer, and um, produced what we now know as mere Christianity. It took a long time to make mere Christianity what it is now. And what's always fascinating is that you can actually listen to his recordings, and then you read the book, same chapter in the book, and I always use it for my rhetoric students. Look at how he's presenting the same arguments on the radio versus in writing. Why? Well, because they're different mediums, um, even though they're essentially the same arguments. So if you ever want to know... Uh, a little something about rhetoric and how to present arguments in, to different audiences. All you gotta do is read his Mere Christianity and listen to the audio. And it's the same thing with the Four Loves. Four Loves, you actually, the audiobook is the, the original recordings. You can hear C.S. Lewis giving the original addresses for the Four Loves, and then you can look at the book that was produced later, and they're very different. Um, how many of you guys have, were very affected when you first read Mere Christianity? Has that been an influential work on your faith? Yeah. 
it's yeah, it's still a book that uh, pastors use with new new believers because he deals with a lot of arguments. And if this class continues into the spring, next spring will pretty much just be about that book. Um, we'll go through it very carefully. Um, but it, it just demonstrates, you know, his his ability because he he stopped wanting to be a poet, but the way that he wrote poetry helped him write better prose, uh, which is also an argument that if you want to write better prose, you should practice writing poetry. It doesn't matter if it's good. Um, C.S. Lewis's poetry was very bad. <laughs> but it helped him to be a better prose writer. So, see, these are, you learn lots of things from him, um, and, and some of it is just sort of unintended consequences. Uh, people are like, why, why is his, his prose so beautiful, so clear, right? Think about how often you hear a C.S. Lewis quote. Um, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis, I think, in two different occasions today, uh, <laughs> during the confession and during the sermon, mm -hmm. because it's just like, there's so many. He just puts things so concisely. And it's all of that practice where he had to, to make images very tight, very small, very quick, with, with verse is where he learned how to do that. Okay. Any questions? Comments? Again, I'm talking a lot. What's your job? What's that? That's your job. That's my job. <laughs> I was going to say. Well, you know, it's like it's very funny because you're. I was always told when I started to teach that you don't lecture. So on my front, I do the same class with the, the co-op kids, and it's a discussion. I always I try not to talk for very more than like three minutes. But you guys just seem fine with the lecture. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really understand. <laughs> Generational thing. A generational thing. I think it's also an age thing. Yeah. I think it's an age thing. It's like we don't have right. We don't have time to sit down and listen to a bunch of podcasts and read a bunch of books about a subject. We just want someone to tell us about it. Where high school kids are like, I don't want to just sit here and listen to this old guy talk. <laughs> it's also just an important skill to just listen to listen. Mm -hmm. I don't know, instead of just engaging, you know. Yeah. To take it in. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> All right, so let's see. Um, yeah, so there's another thing about Lewis is, like, what was he exactly? Was, is, how would you categorize Lewis? Is he a don? Is, I mean, he wasn't a pastor. Is he a theologian? Is he a, a poet? Is he a novelist? What is he exactly? Hmm. All of the above. All of the above. And that's, right? I think that's the draw that I always had with, with Lewis was just because I, I went through Mere Christianity and several other works, Screwtape Letters, I actually had a hard time with because yeah. it was just confronting evil. Yeah. It's like think backwards all the time. Yeah, and, and yet the enemy. Yeah. Going through several different things of his. I was left wanting more, and then I came across Perlandra and Hideous Strength, mm -hmm. and, you know. So that's where you, you, you bring in all the imaginative stuff mm -hmm. that the rest of it can be kind of dry, mm -hmm. and then you put it into the language of the imagination mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you've got a fuller perspective and you can go back and look at some other things and you just get so much more meaning. Yeah. Good. Like the, the you know that I had 
was kind of going back and forth between the two, and I ended up with uh, out of with out of prison, the planet, uh, out of the silent planet, out of the silent planet, and so that had so much more meaning mm-hmm. because of the the two prior Berlandra for one, and then putting that whole imaginative context, and then you're at the same time you're looking at their Christianity and screw tape letters, and then all of a sudden you're reading. Yeah, right. Present <laughs> planet, you know, it's like wow, and it's like yeah, silent planet. Yeah, and, and, and really putting into context this world. Right. Yeah, and, and that's what I find to be so fascinating is you can actually see him developing in that. Like that series, you go from the silent planet to Paralandra to Hidden Strength, and you're not even dealing with the same person by the end. Like he as a writer mm. had had so absolutely changed. They're very different. Yeah, and, and I feel the same way reading The Problem of Pain. It's good, but, but he's still struggling to find that perfect <clears throat> harmony mm-hmm. of, of, of rationality and imagination. And Because Miracles hits very differently than Problem of Pain. Mm-hmm. And, and the Miracles was the last apologetic work he wrote, and Problem of Pain is the first. Mm-hmm. And then you get to something like A Grief of Observed, which is after his wife died, mm-hmm. he just kept a journal about his grief, and he says um, right, he had to deal with the problem of pain in a way he never had before. And, and, and he published that book at, under a pseudonym, and people in his grief would give it to him and say, I think this book will help you. <laughs> <laughs> like friends, who didn't even know it was him. Oh my gosh, Because it's so, like he, he, it was him unfiltered. Um, and then when it came time to publish it, he just took the journal and published it. Um, and he says some things in there he struggles with his faith in a way that is very helpful to me, personally, um, because it re- this is it's like the honesty of it, uh, I think, and that's why you just you find him wildly different in different places, um, because what's that? Which book are you talking about? Uh, a grief observed. Thank you. And, yeah, the last one is um, a book he wrote at the very end called "Till We Have Faces," which I would argue is his best book. But this is the strangest part of the whole thing. After everything else he's written, you read the book, and you only really understand the book while you're reading the book. As soon as you put the book down, you're like, I don't know if I can explain that book. (laughs) (laughs) But when you're reading it, you're like, yes, wow. And and you feel the effect it's having on you. Hmm. And then you put it down, and you're like, well, what's the book about? And I remember the first time my wife read it. And she gave me one of the funniest descriptions of a book I've ever received. And it was like, yeah, kind of. That's what it's about. And then I tried to do the same thing. I laughed at her. And then later I was with her, and someone asked me what the book was about, and I did the same thing. She's like, I don't think that's what the book's about. <laughs> and, and it's like, that's what literature is. Remember we were talking, you can, it's, we're, as human beings with literature, it's, we're the only creatures who can do this. We can sit with a book in our hands and be transformed without going anywhere and doing anything. And he leveled up to the point where he wrote this book at the end of his life that, that does that. It's like not even a book worthy of talking about. It's just a book worthy of reading. Hmm. It does exactly what books ought to do hmm. in the best conceivable way. Um, and you see, I love watching how he gets there. Um, right? It's not as sloppy as, say, Narnia is. Because Narnia is very sloppy. Right? Where, where do the beavers get all that food if it's been went anyway? <laughs> doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He, he, yeah, and they, they asked him to fix it, and he's like, no, you have to just read into the text further. You haven't right. studied it enough, which was his way of saying, I don't really know. <laughs> so, yeah, right? We enjoy C.S. Lewis. That's kind of the point. 
he's he, like I use John Frame's apologetic arguments when I need them, and it's very different. Like C.S. Lewis, it's it, it is very shaping in how I argue about the faith and discuss it, but mostly it's just to edify me. And I think he would have been pleased that most people find it find him to be that way. Just like his voice was so comforting to people on the radio, his voice is still so comforting. Um, he's sort of the right forget. Rush Limbaugh. Nowadays, when I, I, I have I have some C.S. Lewis books in my house, and when I am struggling internally, it's it's one of the things I sit down and simply read because I just want to hear from Lewis. I want to hear some something beautiful and something well thought out yeah. <laughs> in the chaotic world in which we live. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's it for today. Next week, uh, there's a book called Deeper Magic. We're going to talk about the first chapter of that. I know we've been reading uh, Lewis Agonistes. Do you guys have this book, Deeper Magic? Has an orange cover. Yes, I think we do. Okay, it's called Deeper Magic. It's uh, Williamson. I think I've sent out links in the emails before. But yeah, it was. I'll send out another link for it. Okay, because what we're going to do now is now we've covered the part of Louis Agonistes about his life. We're going to get into his ideas, but before we do that, we have to look at how he interacted with knowledge. How did he receive knowledge, process knowledge, and then um, put that knowledge into his work? And so how did he process truth is what we have to look at very specifically before we start talking about his ideas themselves. Okay? Okay. Nate, would you pray for us? Father God, thank you so much for this morning, this time uh, discussion about Lewis and his... uh, imaginative and uh, logical, rational defense of the faith and uh, how that can help us all greatly understand the world you made and uh, pray for the service this morning and for uh, our day and our week coming up. Pray you glorified in all of that we do in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.